This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Welcome to Season 4 of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. The theme this year is a faculty study of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is really better. Believers are and have always been tempted to turn away from Jesus to something else. The believers to whom the book of Hebrews was written were no different. They were tempted to turn to that which appeared to be more glorious, more powerful, and more socially acceptable. According to Hebrews and Paul and John and our Lord himself, all of the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures point to Christ. Jesus said that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. On the Emmaus road, he showed how all the scriptures point to him. The apostle Paul wrote that Jesus is God's yes and amen to all his promises. Nevertheless, believers are often tempted to read the scriptures in ways that diverge from the apostolic approach to reading scripture by putting the old covenant ahead of the new and by undermining or marginalizing the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus our high priest and by replacing his once-for-all word with other sources of revelation and authority. These are the topics, sources, and themes for Season 4 of Office Hours. Joining me today is Dr. Steve Baugh, Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Steve has taught at Westminster since 1982 and is the author of several articles to Greek grammars and a contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. All these titles and more are available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me back. We are talking about the book of Hebrews. So let's do the basics and orient the listener to one of the most significant books in the New Testament, but one of the books that probably doesn't receive as much attention as it should. Oh, I think that's true. (laughs) But a book that was very important, not only in the early church, but also in the Reformation. It's one of the books to which the Protestants and their successors went to establish and validate their case for basic Protestant doctrines of the sufficiency of Christ, that is, his life, death, obedience, resurrection is sufficient for everything we need, for the priesthood of Jesus, that we don't need human priests as intercessors or mediators. We don't need angels or saints or other mediators. They also went to Hebrews to vindicate their doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture alone is the unique norm and authority for the Christian faith and Christian life. And it's also an important way of talking to people about sticking with Jesus and not going back, not turning back. So tell us about the book of Hebrews in its own context. First of all, when do you think it was written? And then talk a little bit about the circumstances of the book of Hebrews. Well, it was written, I, I think, before the fall of Jerusalem. The war that led up to that began in the summer of 67 and ended in 70 AD. So we're we're talking it being written perhaps around 65, let's say, maybe a little bit earlier. It's hard to pin down there we you know, we don't know the author, we don't know the audience precisely. A lot of it can be mirror read, uh, but even then What does that mean? You can look at the audience and know something about them by the problem that's being addressed. You make inferences based on what you're reading in the book of Hebrews. 
Yeah. This is why it's called to the Hebrews is because it appears that there are people who are being tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood, and the assumption is that they are Jewish and are being tempted to return to Judaism. I think that can be challenged a little bit, but that certainly is a big part of the audience. And these are Christians. Right. There are some readings of the book of Hebrews that don't always account for that. I don't think they're widely influential anymore, but the listener may be familiar with some readings of the book of Hebrews. Let's assume, for the sake of discussion, this setting, circa 64, 65 AD, possibly a Jewish Christian pastor, more probably a Jewish Christian congregation to whom he's writing? I personally think it's a uh, mixed congregation. I I don't think there are Jewish Christian congregations in the 60s anymore. I think that really is earlier, but the Gentile mission had been going on for at least 15 or 20 years. And I I think it's really hard to find a congregation that didn't have some Gentile presence myself. When you say mixed, you mean an ethnically mixed congregation of those who are ethnically Jewish and therefore quite probably circumcised and with some background in the observation of the Mosaic law, the 613 commandments, the ritual washings, and all of those things. That's right. And then some who do not have an ethnic connection to Abraham directly. Right. There could have been God-fearers who had some connection with synagogues before their conversion to Christianity. So they they had attended synagogues, service, or been reading some of the Old Testament books on their own and had some interaction with the Jewish congregation and then heard about Christianity and converted. So they're called the God-fearers, coming from a phrase out of the book of Acts. And they're sort of on the fringes of the, the synagogue, right? Not fully integrated. Right. No, they didn't convert to, to Judaism. You know, people talk about converting to Judaism involves circumcision. We think of that as just the physical right, but it really is more than that. To, to convert to Judaism at that time before the fall of Jerusalem meant changing your national citizenship. So it it would be the equivalent of someone converting to Judaism today, which means becoming an Israeli citizen. No longer are you a citizen of the United States or Canada or whatever. You are changing your citizenship and all that that entails. So that prevented a lot of the Gentile people, non-Jews, from converting to Judaism. But when Christianity came... It's a multinational, multi-ethnic church where you don't have to change your national citizenship. Instead, you gain a new citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In this period leading up to the war on what we would think of broadly as Palestine, but the the assault on Jerusalem and the eventual destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there is a growing tide of Jewish nationalism. Talk about that a little bit. There was a growing tide of Jewish (laughs) nationalism. (laughs) What what does that mean? What does that entail? What happened is basically the zealots took over. What qualifies one as a zealot? Israel. Let's call them Israel. It's actually, technically, they're called Judea, the Roman province of Judea, had been ruled by a the Sanhedrin, a ruling body of primarily Pharisees and Sadducees. When you think about the Sadducees, you should think about people who are really political and accommodating politically. Some of them were really becoming more like Greeks in many ways. Theologically liberal, in a sense. Theologically liberal. 
an old friend of mine used to say they didn't believe in the resurrection. Or angels, or the afterlife. Which is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But they had accommodated to political powers. So they were uh, their numbers were being appointed high priest. Of course, in the scripture, one is appointed high priest for life, but now you have a succession of high priests, and it's just a political office. So those people were basically run out of town by... Jewish nationalists who were extreme, so they're called zealots. They were various groups actually banding together to uh, reinstitute the Mosaic law, the theocracy of Israel, and particularly to kick the Romans out of any sort of rule in their land. And so there were political movements, and we're familiar with guerrilla warfare and the kinds of things that we're seeing, sorts of turmoil that we're seeing in the Middle East now. Oh, yeah. So that's what was going on. Nothing new under the sun. Right. And theologically, some of the influences of these zealots might have been rooted in some of the Pharisaic groups and traditions. Yes. So describe the Pharisees for us a little bit. One scholar has said uh, purity had broken out in Israel at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and what it was is they had instituted extra-biblical cleansings and washings and, and rituals that were kind of gone to the extreme. So uh, you actually see it in the New Testament and the Gospels where—but it wasn't because they wanted to get the dirt off. It's because they wanted to get the contamination off from the dust that might have touched a Gentile on the street— they didn't want it on their hands or on their feet because they were removing contamination from non-Jewish people. Ritual contamination. That's right. It's not anywhere in the Scripture. You know, their views of purity meant rejecting anything from the people's roundabout. And so they used to talk about putting a fence around the law. You had the Ten Commandments. You have the 613 mitzvot, the 613 Mosaic divinely given commandments. And then to protect those, the Pharisees developed and the scholars developed a fence of traditions and practices that were meant to keep you from breaking the actual divinely given commandments, right? Right. So you've got biblical laws and then extra-biblical laws, all of which came to have roughly similar cultural, sociological, and religious force yes. in the life of of Jews, Jewish believers in and around the temple and the synagogue and, and so forth. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the classic example of that is the fourth commandment, desire to honor the Lord by resting on the Sabbath day. And so the, the tradition developed, how do we do that? And it resolved to where you could only walk so many steps. So you take X number of footsteps, and if you exceed that, you've transgressed. Say a thousand steps or something. And yeah, right. Then they could lay down a bedroll. Right. That's your home. Right. And then the next Sabbath, you could go another thousand steps. And of course, you do that four or five Sabbaths, and you can go as far and do, in a, in a sense, almost anything you want. So they, they turned the law into, in a sense, lawlessness. Yeah. So there's a kind of legalism and... Yeah. <laughs> antinomianism under the cover of legalism. The two always go together, don't they? This is important to get a clear, strong sense of the background in which the writer to the Hebrews, or possibly the pastor to the Hebrews, is well, writing. You see that residual nationalism, so being a Jew really is being a citizen of that nation. Now you can see how that's tied into the priesthood. It's those priests are interceding for the whole nation. And Jesus may come along and offer more, but there's this feeling that, yeah, but it's not real anymore. It's this uh, invisible kind of stuff, yeah. And we've always been identified with this nation, so the Jewish people 
in the congregation. And then the national, the uh, non-Jewish Gentile people, well, they too have had national religions. I mean, if you're part of a Greek city-state, you have a state god who is the god of you and your family, and your success and happiness is dependent upon that god's protection and your worship of that deity. You can see the attraction of going back to the visible, going back to the tangible, going back to that which had a certain aesthetic quality. I mean, particularly if this is before the destruction of the temple, you could point to Jerusalem and point to the Herodian temple, which was a significant architectural accomplishment and a a visible expression of glory and power. You had a a priesthood that was recognized, that had political standing, and obviously the priest was, by divine law, to be dressed a certain way that conveyed a sense of divine glory and power and influence. So you can see the attraction of turning away from that which cannot be seen to that which can be seen, and that which is socially acceptable under Roman law. For example, uh, Judaism was a religio licta. It was a legal religion. What was the status of Christianity at the time of the writing of Hebrews. Can I go back to something? You can go anywhere you want. <laughs> can I leave the room? <laughs> you can't go that far. Okay. Well, you said something really vital for understanding Hebrews. But good. I'd like to know what it was. Yeah. Okay, quick, tell us before I forget. <laughs> and that is that Hebrews is all about this impulse that is always with us everywhere. And to, it's here today. Our listeners have seen it themselves, and our listeners have heard it themselves, they've seen it in their lives, it's all around us. And that is, we always want to see, we want to see our religion, we want to do something, we want to handle something, we want to present something to God that's tangible, we want to satisfy Him by doing something. This was ingrained in everybody in the first century, whether they're a Jew or a non-Jew which Paul just says Jew in Greek, it means non-Jew. This, this defined everything about them. The smells and bells are what religion's really all about. And now in Jesus, you have something heavenly. You have something not of this world. And one of his biggest arguments is, that's better. It's better that it not be this tangible stuff because it didn't have any real effectiveness to remove the heart of our problem before God, and that is our sin. And that's a tough sell. Yeah. As you already, I think, hinted, we face that today, right? Oh, yeah. Big time. Reformed and evangelical congregation have the preaching of the Word. We have the administration of sacraments. We have two sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, not particularly Simple, ornate, not, that's right. not very glorious. Our, our minister may dress in a suit. He may wear a plain black robe, or he, in some cases, may be dressed even more casually. Well, and there's no particular sacredness to the cloth. You know, you don't have a big ceremony marching the robe up to the pastor, and he dons it after sprinkling holy water on it or something. I mean, you know, we shouldn't anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> In a properly reformed church, this is, right? Right. So right. we're at something of a disadvantage, and you can right. look at Eastern Orthodoxy, which has icons which have some historic value, and depending on one's aesthetic sensibilities, perhaps some artistic value. Incense, holy water. In the icons, when you kiss the icon, you have an actual connection with a saint depicted there in their theology. In Rome, you have a bishop 
in Rome who has a, a pretty magnificent palace, and there are other historic buildings of significance and value. A solid gold crook. I mean, <laughs> there is a certain recognition, and and so vestments that are impressive, outwardly impressive. But you see, the heart of what's different about the Reformed and that, the pastor might wear a nice-looking suit. No, fine. But we're not conveying that there's any special sacredness to that cloth. Whereas in Rome, they are. There's a particular kind of sacredness to the water, and it brings effectiveness to cleansing because it's a certain kind of sacred water. Hebrews undercuts all of that directly, explicitly. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. If you want to look at that quickly, you can go to chapter 10 where he says, look at the Old Testament sacrifices for atonement. They were repeated year by year. And he says, that fact shows that they are not in themselves effective to remove sin, but were reminders of sins to bring them to Christ. So that nothing, even the divinely authorized center of Judaism was itself not effective to remove guilt. Rather, It was a reminder and a pointer to Christ and his atoning sacrifice. That's alone where our guilt is removed, is the once-for-all sacrifice of the Son of God incarnate in human history. And that is, in essence, his argument, but he expands it in so many different ways. Part of the expansion is to show that the atoning sacrifice of Christ wasn't on earth. It was before the very presence of God, because he himself is a heavenly person. So that's kind of the gist of his argument on that. It wasn't only on earth. I mean, it certainly there certainly was an atoning sacrifice on earth, but that atoning sacrifice happened at simultaneously in another venue that we'll come back to and talk about at, at some length. And that is so important because there are today people who are being tempted to go back to the tangible, the visible, for the reasons that we described, the very existence of repetition testifies to their inadequacy. And it's a contrast to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, which testifies to its sufficiency and its uniqueness. Yeah, he exactly. And his argument, if you could put it kind of crudely, is, okay, you say that we have to see, taste, and touch our, the sacrifices, or they're not real. He says, no, it's the barbecue here on earth that's not real. It's just a reminder of the problem, because the problem is before God himself. It's guilt before him. We have to really stand before God himself to have our guilt removed. Well, we can't do that. Well, 
That's what Jesus has done. Yes, a sacrifice on the cross on earth, but it was simultaneously in the heavenly tabernacle, not made by hands. So this is a the only sacrifice that God himself set up for dealing with the actual guilt of all of his people. And if you come any other way, you will not find that guilt being removed by your actions. I've sometimes suggested to people that the theme of Hebrews is that Moses, and using Moses as a symbol of everything that happened under the Old Covenant, all of the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the laws, and so forth, that Moses works for Jesus, that all those things were intended to find their fulfillment and that were intended to point to and illustrate and drive people to the once-for-all work and person of Jesus, who is God's son. Moses, the writer says, was a servant in God's house. He worked, but Jesus is the son. He's the heir. He's the owner. And the builder. And the builder. Of the house. Whose house we are if we hold fast to the confession of our hope. Exactly. So elaborate on that. What does it mean to be the house? And what does it mean for Jesus to be the son, the heir, and he's the, as you say, owner and builder? What's the significance of all of that? Boy, this is getting into the book. (laughs) But let me go back to something you said. Okay. Moses works for Jesus. That brings out what Hebrews says in chapter 3. But what's really interesting about that is that that is Hebrews' message. But notice that when Hebrews argues against the position of his opponents and the people he's trying to persuade gently, lovingly, wonderfully, his listeners away from their false position. He doesn't attack these added on oral traditions of the father, you know, the Pharisees or such. He shows how the Old Testament itself is preparatory. He goes to the to the foundation that God himself instituted and said that wasn't instituted to be permanent. So his argument is as strong as you can make it. He says, so you bring up you know, Rabbi Hillel, as it were, is really arguing against your rabbis, and it's Moses himself, and therefore God himself as the inspired. It's not as if God changed. He intended from the very beginning that the Mosaic covenant would be temporary and illustrative of the ultimate reality that was to come in Christ. It was never, as you said, intended to be permanent. Now, we've used this with reference and application to the disagreement between Roman Catholics or Roman Catholicism and the Reformation, but this also has some relevance to some aspects of contemporary or modern evangelicalism, where people think about rebuilding, for example, in a future glorious age, reinstituting aspects of the Mosaic theocracy or the Mosaic sacrifices. There are versions of evangelical eschatology or views of the last days where during the thousand years, Jesus will sit on a throne in Jerusalem and the priesthood will be reinstituted and he will watch as memorial sacrifices are offered by the renewed priesthood. People are breeding or have bred roan heifers and have sewn together the uniforms for the reinstitution of the priesthood. So it's not even just Roman Catholicism that has reinstituted or gone back in the sense of Hebrews, but even some aspects of evangelicalism in the modern period. Steve, we've talked a lot about to whom and under what circumstances, and you've given us a really good picture of the background. Now for the $64,000 question, who wrote Hebrews? God. (laughs) Any other questions? Okay. It's divinely inspired by a human, by an unnamed human. Okay, inspired by God, and and 
authored authored by a, a real human being not an angel. We don't know with any certainty who wrote it. That's right. Well, the the options have been various. The three most prominent ones have been Apollos. There's a recent book out defending uh, authorship by Luke, the author of Luke Acts. And there are certain similarities. There are certain similarities in uh, language and vocabulary and style. Actually, it's a, it's kind of an attractive idea. Uh, the other is uh, Silas Silvanus, is his longer name. Who was? Paul's associate right. and, and sometimes secretary, perhaps. Right. And then historically, at least at different times in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul has been regarded as the author. Right. And, you know, Barnabas would be similar. Uh, Hebrews was associated with Paul's writings very early. One of our earliest copies of Hebrews, maybe around 200 AD, possibly earlier. So it's a copy of the New Testament. Paul's writings in particular. Hebrews appears surrounded by Paul's writings, but uh, very few people hold to that. I don't think there's any credibility to Paul being the author myself. Whenever I tell people I'm teaching Hebrews, the first thing they ask is, well, who wrote it? I mean, it seems to be the one thing people want to know. And the answer is we don't know for certain. There are these possibilities. But I make the point that we don't know who wrote it, and that itself is important. It's important to bring that out, that the author, who was an associate of Timothy, he says, and if, if I am able, I will come and see you with our brother Timothy at the end of the book. So we know he's in the Pauline circle. There are a couple of phrases that sound reminiscent of Paul's teaching. He had some connection with Paul, I think. He knows Timothy, and there would be a connection there to Paul. But it's important to see that the the exact author isn't that important, or we would know, to understand the, the meaning of the book. Apparently, he didn't think it was that important, and nor did God think it was that important for us to know, or he would have inspired the author to tell us. The author would have been known to the audience. I mean, he would be sending this letter through a person. He had a friend deliver the letter, and the friend would be from this fellow, and they would know who he is. So, you know, the original audience knew this person well and accepted. There's a certain intimacy of the letter. There's intimacy and authority. So it's somebody who had a position of authority. We can we know that. It's, it's you know, an obvious point. But mainly is you can't say, well, it's Paul. Therefore, as Paul says in Galatians, that's what he means here in Hebrews. I don't think you want to do that because oftentimes Hebrews is making a point that's complementary of what Paul's doing. Paul sometimes leaves things out. For example, on the atonement, he'll state it, but he won't develop how it works. And Hebrews will develop that at great length. Or, for example, even more importantly, Hebrews 11, repeated statement about by faith, the great chapter on faith. People really understand that in light of Paul's understanding of faith, and I think it, it has a slightly different shade of meaning there. It's still faith, but he's seeing it operating in a little different way. It's complementary, not in contradiction. Had Paul written Hebrews, he almost certainly would have said, I, Paul, an apostle, which is his typical way of proceeding. And then this seems to be the second great argument is that if we read, as you and I both here have our Greek Testaments in front of us that we'll be looking at as we go through Hebrews, the vocabulary, the grammar, the syntax, the style, um, there are connections, but there are some fairly significant differences between the way Paul writes and Hebrews. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it, it's pretty clear that the, the author places himself with his audience as someone who heard apostolic preaching. Uh, Paul doesn't do that. He is an apostle. He hasn't heard the gospel through another apostle. The author of Hebrews says, we heard testimony from those who heard Jesus. Paul doesn't say that. He says, I 
I got my gospel from Jesus directly. It really is a different generation of author. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. If the listener wanted to do more research in the book of Hebrews, say, listen to this broadcast and thought, you know, I'd like to learn more and do my own study of Hebrews, where would you send them? It's a difficult question to answer. There are kind of layers An introductory layer would be uh, Howell Jones has written on Hebrews, very practical commentary. And Howell is always reliable, sensible. The title of which is Let's Study Hebrews, and it's available in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, WSCAL.edu. So that's a good place, an easy thing to start with. And Howell will share royalties with me now. I'm not laughing because how not that how wouldn't share. It just I was laughing at the notion of, of royalties. <laughs> what else would you recommend? The other thing is an older work by Gerhardus Voss. You probably hear his name bandied around a lot by us here, but he wrote a little book on uh, Hebrews. It's called The Teaching of the Epistle of the Hebrews, which is in the bookstore also. WSCAL.edu slash bookstore. It says, close to a popular writing as Voss could ever get. He still can be a little hard to fathom, but his chapter in that little book on redemptive revelation is a real gem. It's terrific. And it has a chart. So what more could you ask for from Voss? Uh, You know, a graphic. But it really is a profound understanding of a central feature of the book of Hebrews. So I can recommend that. There are commentaries. There are four commentaries, various levels of understanding. For example, uh, one of the easier ones that you know, anybody could pick up is by Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who uh, taught uh, at Westminster in Philadelphia years ago. Uh, and the thing I really like about Philip Hughes is, one, he wrote a very interesting commentary. He's very insightful and very thoughtful, original, but in a good sense. Someone who makes you think, and it's clear that he's just uh, thought a lot about the text, and he's giving you his own ideas that are uh, very sensible and profound understanding of the text. And the second thing I've always appreciated is he uh, reports on the views of people throughout church history going back to the early church through the Middle Ages. And so you kind of get out of the rut of just hearing about what's been written in the last 20 years, which sometimes can just be too recent. People get into ruts, and this sort of breaks you out of the rut and gives you the bigger sweep of interpretation. I really I like that commentary. It's uh, very helpful. What's next on your list? More technical would be in the Word Biblical Commentary series by William Lane. So it has a lot of Greek analysis in it. It's a two-volume commentary, but it has a lot of very interesting and helpful material in it. I don't follow him in every particular, but he has some uh, interpretations which are... uh, will really push you to think about the text in new ways. And one of the problems with Hebrews is I think our English translations have become kind of traditional. There are certain ways to take words and phrases. And if you do a new translation and you break that mold, it might be regarded as eccentric. Unfortunately, modern uh, research has shown that sometimes those words or phrases never mean that and really have to be retranslated to understand the original meaning. Lane will help you see some of that, so I think it's helpful. And finally, there are others that are worth looking at, but the the one that uh, is most recent is by Peter T. O'Brien, and I 
I hesitate to talk about it because I have not used it extensively. I purchased it recently. It's it is rather recent, and I just haven't had a chance to look at it in detail. But uh, O'Brien has done a lot of very solid work in other biblical books, and so I expect it to be a very helpful. Another outstanding resource comes to mind, and that's John Owen's multi-volume commentary on Hebrews, which also comes in a one-volume synopsis from Crossway, and that's available in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Okay, talk about the spiritual value of this epistle. I often give students this brief word about it. Here's a man facing a congregation that is in danger of leaving the faith, of abandoning Christ and going, throwing it all over for the smells and bells. And many of us would be tempted to break out our Bibles and just start laying into them and warning in the most stern and serious manner and shaking our finger in their face. And I think Hebrews is such a wonderful contrast to that. He has the same kind of passion and concern for his people as we do, but he has the most gentle, peaceable, kind spirit when he does it. He's very clear about the dangers they face and the uh, awful consequences of apostasy, but he does it in the most loving way possible. And the one thing that he brings out that you can't miss and you should cherish when you read this book is he offers you Jesus, that instead of just saying, you're going to lose this, you're going to lose that, you're going to lose that, instead he says, here is what Jesus is to us. Positively, he presents the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and effectiveness. And you come away with one thing, and that is assurance. He offers you assurance of your faith that can't be broken. It comes to a head in chapter 7 when he says, God has sworn and he has made an oath that he will accept the sacrifice of your mediator in your place. And if God were to break that oath, he would have to die because it's an oath where his own life and truth is at stake. And he says, you can't have any more certainty than that. And then in chapter 6, he says, and God would have to no longer be God to break that. And he didn't have to make that oath. He did it for us. He wanted to assure us of his kindness. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.